welcome to Splatter Chatter, where October never dies. My name is Mr. Craigers, and I am one of your hosts this evening. And I'm Miss Melmoy. I am the other host for the evening. She sure is. And tonight, uh, we are talking about Justin Simeon's bad hair mm-hmm. from last year as our 83rd episode and as our episode in honor of Black History Month. Um, it's a fun, (laughs) curly, little, campy, uh, horror comedy satire, I guess. Yes, it's definitely in the vein of, and it feels funny saying this because they, like, almost directly reference this in the film, but it's in the vein of, like, Gremlins. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Like definitely, it has that feel. It has that vibe. They film it the same way. There's even something about uh, "Don't Get It Wet." Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, <clears throat> so, so yeah, it's um, it's available on Hulu. If you haven't seen it yet, uh, definitely want to check it out there. Um, but before we uh, dive right into all of the split ends of the film. Um, let's do a quick check-in. Uh, what have you been reading, watching, or listening to as it relates to horror? Okay. So I've got a few, actually. I was thinking about this. I was like, I'm going to have so yeah, many. Yeah, me too. First of all, I have been, um, finally finishing up The Dark Tower. Yes! I'm about two-thirds of the way through Song of Susanna. Um, shit's getting real. <laughs> shit's getting real. Yeah. Um, so that's been a lot of fun. Um, what did you think of Wolves of the Kala? I actually really enjoyed it. And it was funny because I thought like, okay, so we're going to be like killing fucking time for the next 600 pages when they were like, okay, the wolves will come in, you know, 30 days or whatever. Mm -hmm. But, um, you know, and I know the bulk of it, this is spoilers, I guess, for anyone out there who's in the midst of it, but the bulk of it being sort of the rehashing of um, Callahan's story. Like, I was fine with that. It kind of reminded me a little bit of, I guess, um, like Wizard and Glass, where, like, the meat of it is sort of this flashback. Yeah. Um, But I knew going in that there was going to be some, like, serious crossover connections, and I knew about the Stephen King becoming a character in it. But it was still, like, really, I was like, oh, okay, here we go. Here we go. (laughs) Um, And I think... They're where I am in Song of Susanna is they're just about to try and go save him from the, the accident. The car. Yeah. Which is just so fucking self indulgent and hysterical and I forgive him for it. It is and like, and like it works. Yeah. It shouldn't and it's annoying, but Well uh, and I think in the context of the world he's created where it's like, okay, our world, Stephen King's world is the the keystone world, the key world, so like the other worlds would exist as stories in this one, you know, like, so I get it. I think it, it you know, it, if nothing else, it's consistent. Yeah. So I'm willing to believe it. Um, but, yeah. um, and yeah. I love, I love bringing in Callahan yeah. and, you know, like all the, the callbacks to Salem's lot. And, well, and like, it makes me want to like re- read Salem's lot. Cause that was like the first Stephen King book I read. And at the time I didn't know shit about the dark tower or any of that stuff. Yeah, absolutely. I had no, like, I like, had no idea that, like, he was going to come back and be such a major figure or anything. Or the, yeah, and the, the vampires are, like, the foot soldiers of the Crimson King and stuff, mm-hmm. which totally makes sense, and I buy it. I'm just like, damn, i got to reread this. So I might do that at some point. I know. And, um, and I just appreciate the work that he put into, like, 
explain how all of his books are part of like the multiverse, right? Like mm-hmm. everything. And why a- some like aren't or some like have different, you know, sets of rules than other, you know, like, yeah, exactly. Like why Randall flag appears in multiple yes. different stories and different in multiple names. different ways. Yeah. Like how, how could the world of the stand still take place? Well, it's like, well, cause that's a different Which level of the tower. I do love. Yeah. Like in the beginning of Wolves of the Callow when they're like walking through the like, version of the world that's been overtaken by a super flu and i was like oh y'all hit a boulder yeah right <laughs> um, like, oh my god for this brief period of time you're in the same world yeah um so i've been really enjoying that not so much enjoying the stand on cbs all access but i have a lot of fucking thoughts and i think we should definitely do at least a two-parter talking about them yeah which we had brought up yeah. that it might be time to finally do the stand yeah and so maybe that'll be our our post covid man it is not good yeah no and it's <laughs> funny because the first episode i was like okay i'm willing to to give this, you know, okay, I'm into this, which seems like that was everyone else's reaction. Cause even on the losers club, that was, they were like, Oh yeah, I'm into it. It's great. And then by the second episode, we're like, Oh no, this is not going to work. <laughs> <laughs> oh no, this isn't how you do it. It's just, and, and not to get, not to get crazy into it. Cause that's not the focus of today's episode. And mm-hmm. we will probably cover it later this year, but it was just the wrong way to tell that story mm-hmm. for me. I, the the flashbacks and the jumps in time did not work. The bottle episodes, but the bottle episodes broke down halfway through. Yeah, but then they broke down, and it's like there are places in the stand where you can do bottle episodes, but you chose the wrong ones. And if you're going to do that, just do three seasons. Yeah. Don't. There's no reason to cram it all into no. one. And yeah, I'm going to save everything that I've been thinking. <laughs> for then and it's funny too listening to the losers club because you just want to start talking to them too (laughs) yeah um it's like they're they're such a great podcast um i feel like i'm like i definitely like will answer them when i'm listening (laughs) i'm like i know they can't hear me but like you're like you know what yeah i i agree randall (laughs) (laughs) yeah exactly um um yeah check out the losers club great podcast for all things stephen king um, they and they have a stuff. and they have a few of the stand people on um, in interviews. Yeah, did you listen to the interview with Owen Teague? I didn't because I'm going to listen to the interviews at, after I finish listening to all the recaps. Yeah, really problem. great. There's also one with um, Catherine oh, I can't think of was in there. Yeah, the um, the actress who plays Julie. Yes. Yeah. Who was a standout? Shockingly, um, she was. I- <laughs> Until they misused her in the last episode. Whatever. Yeah. Anyway, point is, I've been doing that, not enjoying it, but I've been doing it. Um, I recently um, watched a playthrough of, and I would recommend this to anyone who's looking for, like, some fun fuck-around shit to do. Um, I watched a playthrough of this this indie horror game that just came out a recent, I don't know how recently it came out, like, within the past month or so, I think. But it's called Dead of Night. Um, and like as a concept by itself, like it's not super, like if it was a movie, it wouldn't be super interesting, but in the context of a video game, it's incredibly effective. Um, basically the premise is you're playing as this girl, Maya, who's like staying at this hotel in like seaside England because her and her friends were at like a music festival that got rained out. 
And this was the only hotel that they could find. And the hotel owner, Jimmy, is, like, fucking weird. Um, and he's a little bit, like, you know, he, he at one point is like, come to my comedy show tonight. And she's like, no. And that just, like, sets him off. But um, he's weird. He's creepy. He's clearly got some sort of alternate personality happening. Um, and basically, it takes over. And um, your goal, then, is you have to avoid him throughout the hotel while also solving the mystery of like what's going on oh i feel like okay i feel you like may I have heard seen, about this it's been very big recently yeah i feel like i've seen it pop up a bit on horror twitter yes people, so like posting clips and stills from it yeah so basically yeah. it's click and point um and you have three hotel floors you can explore on any of those three jimmy can be lurking around um, and to hide from him, you go into rooms and hide in rooms. Um, he can't come in the stairwell, the ground floor, or the basement, so you can go there and be mm. safe. But you basically, while going through, you find clues and artifacts and then have to talk to the ghosts and ask the ghosts the right questions and ask the right ghosts the right questions about the right objects to basically piece together Jimmy's story. But it's so fucking tense <laughs> because, <laughs> like, you know, Jimmy could be anywhere or it'll be like, you know, a thing will pop up saying Jimmy's on your floor, be careful, or it'll say, like, yeah, and you're like, oh, my God. And, like, even into, like, the fourth video of the, the, the thing I was watching, like, I was, there were still surprises about, like, the mechanisms of the way Jimmy can operate and, like, how he can trick you and, like, that sort of thing. And, like, you look through peepholes and you see him walking past like you know now things creepier than a people yeah so the whole thing is so effective in that way and it like got me so many times like i'm sitting here and i've got it like on my second monitor like as i'm like doing like work or whatever and it's just <laughs> i like jump out of my skin it's it's really good um so i've been enjoying that Reminds me a little bit of, like, the OG Slenderman. Yeah, no, it's it's very much, and I said that to one of my <laughs> friends, I was like, it's very much the Slenderman mechanics just, like, grown up and With more mature. Twist. Yeah. So now you didn't play, you just no. watched the playthrough. I can't play horror video games, I can only watch them. <laughs> That's how I am with, like, all video games. Yeah. I love to watch them. Mm-hmm. Um, but camera, that was, like, I... I'm sure I told, I think I mentioned it in our October episode. Um, cause I, uh, I was away for the weekend in the cabin yes. with my cousin and he was playing Friday the 13th. Yes. Which, which can also get really tense, especially mm-hmm. if you're playing as a camper and Jason pops out of nowhere. And I was like, I have no desire to play none whatsoever. But like, I just kept asking people to play. So can you I play so I can watch. Yeah. <laughs> no, that's the thing. Like, I had cousins who would play like Resident Evil and stuff, and it's like I don't want to play, but I want to watch you play. Mm, everyone's jazzed about the new Resident Evil. Yeah, the giant vampire woman. Yeah, she's creepy. She is creepy. Um, and then the last thing I did was it's kind of horror adjacent, but um, I watched the Elisa Lam documentary on Netflix. Oh, how was it? Um, I have a lot of thoughts <laughs> about the way it was produced and the angle it takes and, like, who it kind of gives a platform to mm-hmm. um, in the realm of, like, <clears throat> here's all these, like, very entitled white YouTubers demanding to know what happened to this dead Asian woman. Yeah. Um, and I think it's frustrating the way it glances over, like, the societal and institutional issues around Skid Row and kind of just blames the violence of Skid Row for stuff. 
Um, and I also think it ignores like the fact that it basically obviously answers the question kind of of what happened like in broad yeah. strokes like <clears throat> we can basically piece together what probably happened yeah but rather than saying that the documentary delves into like the hotel is hiding something and like you know what you know what's this conspiracy and it's like it's not it's like it's pretty it's pretty clear what happened yeah i haven't watched it yet i probably will i've been a little a little hesitant because this story has become like to me has felt like really icky in mm -hmm. recent years because I feel like people have really sort of exploited it yeah and exploited her mm -hmm. and I'm pretty familiar with it I think it's pretty obvious what happened like you were saying mm -hmm. like I don't yeah. To me, it's obvious there's not a grand conspiracy. Yeah. And what happened is just very sad. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. I don't know. It just feels weird to sort of like pretend that there are things there that aren't. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> it, it's just, yeah. And it, like, you know, the way that, because her parents are in it, not in the actual documentary, but they reference her family for like a second and then leave them. And then, you know, the entire, you know, tortured existence of the lack of um, closure of all this is is on the, the various, they call them, quote unquote, web, web sleuths who are who are invested in this. And it's like, OK, you've yeah. developed a kind of parasocial relationship with this deceased woman and yeah. now feel entitled to know every single detail about the last few moments of her life. Like that's does that you know, have some self-awareness. Yeah. Um, yeah. I think so, that's what it is. Yeah. So, right. and I, like, I went into it being like, it's probably going to be, you know, something like that. And it was, um, but I'm glad that I can engage with it in a way where I can say, this is not the approach to take. And also we don't, you know, it's like, it's like when they um, started doing the, advertisements for Clarice and I was like who is this for <laughs> like who exactly. is this for um so that's my my take on that um oh Clarice is apparently really bad I it I saw that for a second I was willing to be like you know what fuck it I've got CBS all access maybe I will but then I saw it was like a 33 on Rotten Tomatoes and I was like no I'm not fucking putting myself through that yeah, I don't give a shit about uh Clarice sucks. and the uh the um Jodie Foster look-alike yeah, person. Whoever that is. Sound-alike person. It's, well, because apparently, like, it's just it's just a procedural yeah. with the window dressing of, like, Thomas <clears throat> Harris' characters. Yeah. And we it's can't like, use all of Thomas Harris's characters because of the way the rights work. Yeah. So uh, the show is not actually, <coughs> excuse me, Yes. allowed to mention <laughs> Hannibal Lecter. Did you just work around that? Like, oh yeah, like yeah. that case with that guy? Yeah, that's apparently what they do in the first episode, which is set like a year after the events of Silence of the Lamb. you can't get the rights <clears throat> to mention Hannibal Lecter, like why even go past that, that point? Exactly. <clears throat> they do this thing where I guess it's like her trauma comes from what she experienced in the house with Buffalo Bill, mm -hmm. which is like, okay, that's Fair. legit, yeah. given how the movie ends. That was traumatic. Yeah, but apparently there's... Because they can't, like, there's no mention of him at all. Even though, like, that's questionably, like, the underlying trauma of exactly. her situation. 
there's apparently like this one crack, like there's a throwaway line where like, I guess, I guess she's like someone tells her to go to therapy or something. And she's like, well, the last therapist I saw. Okay. See, in this situation, don't make it, don't make it silence of the lambs. Just make it your own, your own original story. And that's the the premise of this. Just make it another like color by numbers procedural. Yeah. Which also like stop making police procedurals in today's day and age. Like, fuck that. Let's stop glorifying the police that way. (laughs) Well, also aside from that, they're just boring. They are boring. Um, I feel like they're an excuse for people to be like, we hired consultants. Right. Yeah. (laughs) Um, But what have you been up to? So, yeah. So I have been doing a lot of horror television lately. Mm -hmm. Um, Not, not watching a ton of horror films. Not that I don't want to, I've got a bunch lined up, but I don't know, for whatever reason, a lot of horror TV, including this stand, which the tan, didn't like the tan, the tan as it were. did they start calling it that on the losers club They're like we'll differentiate it from the the 90s miniseries <laughs> oh my god you just like, call this one the tan we'll call this one the tan uh lot, lots of issues but yeah. um yeah but i've also been watching um i binged watched the whole first season of servant on okay Apple TV+. okay yeah so creepy. Yeah. Yeah. I actually I I mean I knew about it but I saw like the just yesterday a um like bus shelter ad for it and I was like, "Oh, huh. I forgot about that." Yeah. Super creepy. Um they're like half hour episodes, so I like went through the whole first season in like two nights. Mm-hmm. And then the second season is airing right now. Um really like great tight show performances are phenomenal um because it's such a small cast and um in addition to that i've also been watching the exorcist tv show <laughs> that was on for two seasons and then like they canceled five it five years ago yeah and it's on hulu huh. it's actually really good oh interesting yeah i um started getting weird dreams while watching the first season. I'd be into it. It's pretty creepy. Um, And they, I don't want to give too much away, but the way they tie things into the first film is very fun and clever. Because at first I was like, is this just like, are they redoing the original movie as a TV show? Cause mm-hmm. I'm not interested if that's the case, Yeah. but that, but that's not what it is. Okay. Uh, I'm willing to, I'm willing to, to delve into those waters. Yeah. I would recommend it. It's only two seasons of 10 episodes each. So it's not like the biggest time commitment in the world. Um, it does some fun stuff. Cool. All right. <clears throat> Good to know. So, yeah, now I think we'll move into the main discussion of our episode, which is, of course, Justin Simeon's 2020 film, Bad Hair. Before we talk about the film, let's take a listen to the trailer. Expected of it, it's so bad. I know. 
Jesus people have certain expectations and my girls need to play and dream. Who does dream well? Anyone? No? I don't think you're dreaming well. I just scare you to death. All right, so as we can glean from the trailer, Bad Hair is a film about bad hair. (laughs) Can I just say, regardless of any cultural context, which we will obviously get into, in general, hair is a thing that creeps me out. Like, when I I have to clean hair out of a drain, (laughs) when I I have to, like, pull it up, like, freaked out by hair. So... Yeah. I think for... Yes. (laughs) And for me, it's, and this sounds like what it is for you, it's hair that has been detached. Yeah. Yeah, like, like my own hair I'm fine with, but. Yeah. yeah, my own hair is fine with, like, other, like, other people's hair. Like, you know, a lot of people like when people play with their hair. I'll mm-hmm. play with someone else's hair if they want. Yeah. Like, people I... can play with my hair. That feels nice. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, it's hair that's no longer on a head. Yeah, freaks me out. <laughs> yeah, it's like, um, all of my close friends are women. Yes. All of those women have long hair. We leave so much hair in your apartment so at the much end hair of weekend. <laughs> when they come to visit me, when I find it, if there's always a little bit of a moment of... <laughs> 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 um, I think the worst, and this is not necessarily in regards to my friends, but just in general, is when you encounter hair in the shower yes. or near drain, like you said. And I remember specifically that being a thing when I was um, a freshman in... At Pitt, the TA was telling us, like, clean your hair out of the shower. She was like, I don't want to see clumps of hair in the bottom of the shower, and I don't want to see the weird, like, spaghetti art of hair on the wall that, you know, people will do and stuff like that. And it's like, ugh. <laughs> yeah, on the walls, too, is always like a nope, nope, yeah. nope. Um, so, but, but also to be clear, um, all of my amazing friends are really good about cleaning up 
any hair that they leave behind for the most part, but hair just happens to get everywhere. Yeah. And you can't catch everything. Um, but yeah, Miss Mel, I think you're, you're speaking to something that like, I think is very universal to the point where there's a whole sub genre of horror in a lot of Asian countries, particularly Japan, that is about hair. Yeah. Um, and we'll get into just a little bit of that later on, but in terms of this film, what we're dealing with specifically is um, Afro-textured hair mm-hmm. and um, African-American slave lore surrounding hair and how that relates to present day uh, cultural associations and relationships between black people and their hair, particularly black women mm-hmm. and their hair. Um and you uh, brought up um, something that I think speaks to that that you wanted to talk a little bit about. Um, yeah. Um, well, I mean, there's a lot of stuff in here that we could go into. Um, and there was something that I wanted to plug a little bit. Yeah, sorry, that's what I was... Yeah, about. but do we, do we want to go through... Do we feel the need to go through the movie at all real quick? or? Oh, yeah, let's... Yes. Good point. Let's do that first to give people who haven't seen the film yet a little bit of a clearer idea of Mm -hmm. what we're dealing with this episode. Great. Uh, So Bad Hair follows um, a young woman named Anna Bloodsoe, who is a um, production assistant at uh, Culture um, TV, which is um, a programming block on a um, major city's um, national television network. I don't know if we it's, know where. I, think, I feel like it's kind of meant to be like a nondescript like MTV yes. type thing. Yeah. Because yeah. she describes herself at one point as a VJ. Yeah, yeah. Because we're, we're set in L.A., right? I believe so, yeah. Yeah. And uh, we know that the year is 1989. So it's yeah, it's very much that sort of rise of music video television culture. It's very much that um, sort of feel to things. And at the beginning of the film, it turns out that culture is being repurposed. Basically, um, a new uh, head of uh, programming is being brought in. Yeah. Uh, a woman named Zora Choice. Who, a former I didn't super catch mother. her last name, Choice. That's yeah. so funny. Mm-hmm. Zora Choice. Zora Choice, uh, who was played by the great Vanessa Williams. By the way, stacked cast. When we say different people's names, it's stacked not it's cast, not a, yeah. a a mistake. Yeah, I mean, stacked. Wow. Like if nothing um, else, this movie had to be so expensive for like the salaries. Yeah, well, and I we'll get to the budget later, but I have a feeling most of it went to the, the yeah. cast. <laughs> um, yeah, yeah, yeah. So, yeah, so Zora comes in, and uh, there's this interesting moment where, you know, everyone is kind of like, why is a supermodel in charge of a, of a, of a television mm-hmm. program now? And um, it's just kind of just like, oh, huh. That's the way Hollywood works. 
And Zora starts instituting a lot of changes. She changes the, the name of the block from culture to cult. Um, Which is such a branding, like that part in particular, I thought was such a well done, like very, like, I believe that. Yeah. Like, you know, it's like, oh, like we're rebranding to, to cult. And like, we've watched TV shows do that, you know, not necessarily yes. in this context, but like sci-fi to sci-fi to get yeah. away from certain connotations. Um, when we were growing up, the WB to the CW. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And or um, ABC Family to Freeform. Yeah. Like, yeah, we we see it happen. Like, I thought that was so, that meeting was so like, oh, I believe this 100%. <laughs> I definitely believe that meeting a lot. Um, yeah, and so one of the changes that Zora brings in uh, amidst these sort of like, um, people are kind of getting fired, basically. Mm-hmm. Like, it's it's sort of put to us that like, <clears throat> oh, it's, it's part of the rebranding and, and it's like reshuffling, just come chat with Zora. But, like, it's really these sort of these, like, unofficial interviews. Mm-hmm. So Anna's really nervous because she was the assistant to the former head of programming, Edna, who's stepping down. So she's not sure that she has a job anymore. Uh, but Zora sees something in her and um, is impressed uh, by Anna's drive to um, become a regular host and a regular VJ. But basically she tells Anna that she needs to change her hair because Anna, uh, Anna's a black woman and, uh, she wears her hair naturally at the moment and at Zora's suggestion sort of to move up the corporate ladder, Anna eventually makes the decision to, uh, get a weave. How does that go for her? So, um, so Zora, I guess, points her to the place where she had gotten, her weave because the suggestion here I think is that weave like the uh, the concept of a weave in like mainstream is kind of new um because they see earlier like one of the um uh like singers who they feature on their program like recently got a weave and they're like oh my god like what's her hair like what is this um but yeah so Zora points her to this place called Virgie's um to to go and get this this weave procedure done and you know Anna's a little bit um reluctant at first because her father is a professor of African studies um you know she's obviously been instilled with a lot of you know pride in her heritage and like awareness of where she comes from but at the same time like I think it's like her sister's like a PhD candidate or something and her boyfriend also is and her dad's yeah. like obviously a doctor so like everyone's like very um successful and she's like <clears throat> you know an executive assistant at this company where she's been like passed over for promotions in the past so she finally is like you know what fuck it i'm doing it yeah <clears throat> so she goes there and virgie the owner of the salon is played by surprise <laughs> and this was a surprise laverne cox yeah. who turns um, who had some, they like did, I feel a very good job with her makeup in like making her look like something about her was a little off, you know? Yes. I thought so too. Yeah. Like it wasn't, it wasn't like totally like this person's spooky, like something's wrong here. It's just like, okay, something about her is a little, a little weird. Yes. And I also like, did, do you have a moment where I was like, Virgie's hair ironically doesn't look good. Yeah. It, it doesn't look good, like, on her face. Yeah. Um, 
which I didn't know if that was like supposed to be intentional irony because she's, you know, she is giving all of these like black women new hair, so to speak, but her own looks really unnatural. I wasn't sure if that was yeah. intentional or if that was just me. Right. And like, yeah, cause her hair doesn't really look like it matches her face, but also at the same time, her face, like she's got like eye makeup that makes her eyes look like sunken in almost like something about her just feels very like if you told me that character was supposed to be a 500 year old witch i believe you well that was was how that's how some people read it i think that she is the witch yeah original witch so she goes there and the woman at the front desk is like okay it's 400 dollars for a weave and she's like holy shit um and she eventually talks virgie into giving her like, she tells her her whole situation, and Virgie's like, okay, I will give you a weave, just hang out until I'm done for the day. Um, so she does, and it's after hours, and she's like, you know, they go through the hair, they pick out the hair, she's like asking where it comes from, and Virgie says, don't worry about it. Um, and eventually, um, she's like, okay, let's do this. Now, for, my, for me, as a, you know, and it should not have taken 28 years, but as a 28-year-old white woman, like, this was the first time I understood actually what goes into a weave. Because um, mm-hmm. I understood it was hair sewn into hair. Um, but I had no idea, like, basically what happens is is a woman's natural hair is pinned to her head in very tight, um, on-the-scalp braids, and then the weave is sewn into those braids. So basically, like, you know... You're taking somebody's natural hair and just compressing it and making it disappear and, and putting new hair on top of it. Yeah. Um, is what happens. <clears throat> um, so it's painful. Um, the yeah. And, you know, when I was looking up things about the process of getting a weave put in, that's a thing. Like, getting a weave put in is, you know, regardless of the magic and everything in this, in this is a very painful process. Mm-hmm. The hair is very tightly braided to the skin. Um, and then it is... You know, the the new hair is sewn in very close to the scalp. It's very, you know, it can be very painful. (laughs) Sorry. And that's, I think, like, maybe the most horrific part of the film. Yeah. Which has nothing to do with the supernatural elements. It's just when we see uh, the weave being put Mm -hmm. onto Anna's head. Um, And I think, well, you go ahead. No, I was just gonna say, just the way the way it's presented and the 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 way it's filmed is mm-hmm. um, very uncomfortable to watch. It is, and Elle Lorraine just does such an amazing job of being like, I feel so bad for her because this is so painful, and she's like, I have to do this. Like, I've made a mis-, you know, and at point she's like, I made a mistake. I shouldn't have done this, but I have mm-hmm. to do it. And it's just so upsetting to watch this woman be in such like emotional and physical pain. Um, you know, and at, at certain points the process draws blood i don't think it's designed to in real life i'm sure that probably does happen um but obviously here it you know it gets to the point where it's so painful that she passes out um and when she wakes up she has new hair and virgie tells her to um you know be careful with it it's going to be tender for a few days she gives her a bottle of like hair cream that she said it's you know it's my proprietary blend to help you know your hair settle and to help your scalp feel better. And she says, don't get it wet, which is interesting because I feel like the don't get it wet thing is both a little bit of a wink trope, but also does have some cultural folklorish context to it by the end, which I thought was pretty clever. Yeah. There's a lot going on in that line, right? 
that I feel like upon in the moment I was just like, okay, that's a, that's a nod to gremlins. And like, I, I mean, I think that that's also just true. Yeah. And then of course, the other thing, (laughs) it has bigger implications. Yes. So, um, noticeably as, um, Anna's leaving the pop star from earlier from the music video comes in (laughs) with her boyfriend, um, Jermaine D played by none other than Usher Raymond, the fourth. (laughs) Um, and basically she comes in, she's got like crazy hair because they make a comment like, oh yeah, like it started raining at the venue or whatever. Um, and she's like, sister, she's like, she means it when she says don't get it wet. And it's kind of like this little weird moment. So she leaves. <clears throat> um, she goes into work the next day or some days later with her new hair and noticeable, like everyone's like, oh my gosh, and this new hair, this guy, Julius, who's a VJ, who she's been kind of like on and off again seeing is suddenly super interested yes <laughs> um is suddenly super interested in her again um <clears throat> zora is like great this is awesome um but her friends at the this the like channel who um uh, <clears throat> had like been kind of part of this like little group that you feel like edna was kind of like mentoring um as a group um are now like what the hell are you doing? Like, are you kidding me? You got like a white woman's hair. <clears throat> One of them is played by um, Lena Waithe. <laughs> yeah. Very excellent. Um, but, um, you know, and, and Anna's in pain throughout the day. She like does this thing where she slaps her hair, which I think is probably a very common occurrence when it comes to weaves. I know it is a common thing that they tell you to do when you get a tattoo so you don't scratch. Um, but basically, you know, it seems to work out for her. Um, the first day she has a good response even though her friends are like what the fuck is going on <clears throat> um that night or some nights later she's in her apartment um and her landlord who has been hounding her for back rent uh shows up and what happens so mr cannon is very clearly not a nice guy um, we get a sense of that because he's jacked up the rent by five hundred dollars. Yes, <clears throat> with, in nineteen eighty nine is quite a lot of money. I can't even if somebody did that's, that to me now, I would be. Yeah, that's quite a lot of money now for your rent to suddenly jump up by. Um, but that's what he's done. Uh, Anna's obviously not been able to pay that yet. She now can in her sort of new role. Um, uh, and, and, and what's been going on with Zora. Plus she gets a little bit of extra money from her, her. Okay. So you mentioned that they, it was her parents. I thought it was her aunt and uncle and I've seen it, it in, in like reviews and stuff as like some people say an uncle and some people say, parents. I think it's her adoptive parents, but it is her aunt and uncle. Okay. Like I think her aunt and uncle adopted her when she was younger. There's no mention of like her actual parents, but her. Yeah. And she calls Blair Underwood, the character, she calls him Unc. Yeah. And her and, her cousin, sister, whoever says in the beginning in that little opening scene when they're fucking with her hair the first time, she's like, oh, maybe people will actually think we're sisters now. Um, oh, I missed that. Okay. Yeah. So there's no, I don't know what happened to her actual parents, but I think what's going on here is her aunt and uncle adopted her. Okay. So they are essentially her parents. Yeah. 
but like whatever legally yeah. her aunt and uncle yeah okay so yeah and they like they each slip her some money so she's able to pay the rent but mr tannon is there and he's drunk and what he's come to do essentially is to to rape uh anna to assault her mm-hmm. and take advantage of her um because she's in this precarious position she immediately realizes the danger she's in and she kind of does what she can to um uh, curtail the assault until she can defend herself. And what she's able to do is uh, fight back and stab him with uh, a box cutter. And then it's at this moment that something very strange happens. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> um, I can't remember if she's, cause he fights back as well. Like the, the stab. Yeah. Doesn't so she reaches down. for the box cutter. And then I think, he knows what she, he realizes what she's doing and attacks her. And then, um, I don't know if it's, she grabs the box cutter or the hair (laughs) grabs the box cutter or the hair itself is what stabs him. But one of those things happens. Cause he ends up stabbed. Yeah. And the hair, her hair goes into his wound Mm -hmm. and sort of like soaks up the blood and, like, she sort of, like, wakes... There's, like, a moment where she's, like, sort of, like, slightly unconscious. And then, like, she, like, wakes up and, like, sees the hair doing that. And, like, the hair has essentially, like, finished the job and killed Mr. Tannen. Right? Mm-hmm. Like, and it's... It sort of, like, sucks up the blood and then, like, shrinks back and is, like, regular hair again. Yeah. And then there's this really hilarious moment where... um she just like pushes his body out the window <laughs> into the and, dumpster and it falls like four or five stories into the dumpster below. And like the force of it, the impact like closes the, the dumpster thing and no one sees. It's really There's like fun. somebody walks by and just does not. Yeah, even... Like these two guys walk by like right after um, and no one knows it. Um, I do think there was a scene earlier that we missed um, that I missed at the office where she gets a paper cut and her hair gets in the oh, paper yeah, cut. That's right. As the first hint of this happening. That's right. And she thinks that's really weird. And of course, obviously, this is like the next step. Yeah. Um, The body is discovered. There's a pretty funny cameo by Nicole Byer. Um, Nailed it. Uh, um, She's uh, she plays the neighbor. And um, and so, you know, Anna's kind of like, okay, something is not right. Um, And she's. Uh, um, obviously very aware that this is not how we <laughs> behave, I guess. And so she she's trying to suss out, we get like a scene or two where she's trying to suss out information from Zora about like what might be going on because, you know, Zora directed her to go to Virgie's. Um, but she doesn't quite get answers. There's a subplot where Julius is um, sleeping with Zora now. Um, and used to be sleeping with Anna. Um, so there's an awkward dynamic that's going on there. Um, and there's also, uh, Anna gets a little bit of information from a book that was given to her by, um, her uncle, father, dad, uh, (laughs) Blair Underwood's character about, um, uh, slave lore, African American, uh, slave stories um one of which involves the story of a figure known as the moss-haired girl who collected a wig of moss from a tree 
Um, and this wig ended up um, killing her, her master um, because it grew from the hair of witches. And so Anna's like reading this story a little bit and she kind of gets freaked out and, and um, she's like, what the fuck is going on? Um, but it can't also be doubted that the weave is helping her become successful. Mm-hmm. And Zora very much indicates that in this new version of culture, cult, um, Anna has a strong chance of becoming the centerpiece and becoming the host of the show. And that's something that Anna has wanted for a really long time. So she doesn't make a move to get rid of the weave. In fact, she basically concedes to Zora's will that she encourage uh, the other women in the office that have retained their natural hair to go to, to Virgie's and get weaves as well. Um, Lena Waithe's character, Brooklyn, decides not to, but there's also the implication that Zora wants to keep Brooklyn's, yeah. like, look, like the Afrocentric look. Yeah. But um, her other friend, uh, Sister Soul, played by Yanni King, does. And, like, there's a very clear personality shift for her. And so um, things are escalating. There's a drastic change in the office. There's this big party that they have where Edna shows up, Anna's old boss, and she, like, expresses that she's really disappointed in Anna. Um, and she's, like, started her own, or tried to start her own production yeah. company. And she was like, come be a part of this. And Anna, like, wasn't returning her calls. Yeah, and Anna was like, well, you, like, yeah, you, you know, you never this and that and Edna's kind of like I was going to take you with me and there's like there's some resentment I think because like you know when Edna was in charge of culture she maybe wasn't paying Anna as much as she should have and there's a suggestion that she like Anna was the one who came up with the entire concept of culture's like programming block Mm -hmm. she says that in the initial interview with Zora and Zora's like you did what um and then nothing ever came of that and then hosting of it actually went to julius and not to her so and like her uncle aunt and uncle ask at one point like about promotions and stuff and she said like they're like oh aren't you due for a promotion like so there's some question there as to like why edna never like elevated her in any way um or compensated her fairly which i think makes us understand like right like why why the resentment on anna's part like why Mm -hmm why she didn't go with Edna because you know, they're yeah, maybe Edna didn't fully appreciate Anna and the work that she contributed to culture. And now to Anna's perspective, it seems like Zora does. However, at this party is when Anna discovers that Zora is not going to make Anna the host of the program. She's actually going to make herself Mm -hmm. the host of um, the new version of cult, uh, which understandably so upsets Anna a great deal. Um, and so I believe it, yeah, it's that night. It's the same party as when she makes the decision to go home with Julius, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. They were, they had kind of been a thing. Um, and, you know, there's an implication that Anna was maybe more interested in Julius than he was in her, that he was kind of using her a little bit, um, he throws her over at the beginning of the movie because now he's hooking up with Zora, but 
they Julius and Zora end up having a fight. So Julius uh, takes the opportunity to go home with Anna. They start getting intimate with each other, and um, Anna blindfolds him and starts asking him like, uh, you know, like, am I the best you've ever had? Like, tell me I'm better mm-hmm. than her, kind of thing. And like, we there's this very clear sense that like Anna's being possessed by the weave yes. or what lives within the weave and uh, her hair kills Julius. Or very um, Gone Girl-esque murder. Yeah, very Gone Girl-esque. <laughs> um, so he's out of the picture now. This this is sort of, um, this is it, right? Like, Anna could get past Mr. Tannen because he was a creep, yeah. you know, and he tried to assault her, but now she's killed Julius. Yeah. And so... Uh, she goes to um, uh, an Afrocentric salon um, and sort of begs to have the weave removed. And uh, turns out that this is where Edna goes to get mm-hmm. her hair done as well. And uh, she comes in. It's really late when it's just it's just them. Yeah, because she, she calls her and she's like, thank you for taking me. And she's like, I had an opening and it's like 8 o'clock at night or later. yeah. yeah, yeah. Yeah, and so um, it's just them there along with the two women that work there, uh, Aisha and Denise, I think, are the characters. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, Denise starts to starts to remove um, Anna's weave, and there's sort of like a, a little bit of a reconciliation and an apology between Anna and Edna, but the hair defends itself will not be removed it will not be removed and it kills everybody in the salon including edna yeah i mean obviously it doesn't kill anna mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> and so um obviously freaking out anna goes oh she goes to the offices yeah yeah she goes back to cult i think to i I guess it's to find Zora. Yeah, I'm not really sure why um, she does it specifically, but I think, yeah, because Zora... Because Zora makes a comment earlier in the film where she's asking her if she's using the product. um, Yeah. And she says... And Anna says yes, and Zora's like, it's not enough, is it? And she's like, huh? And then somebody comes in and interrupts them. So the the insinuation is Zora knows something about the weird happening. Zora knows something. Zora recommended it. Zora has a weave, you Mm. know, she has, she has straight hair. So like, you know, so she goes there. um, And Zora is, Zora is there. It's again, it's also really late. Um, But Zora is there and she has, killed Cheryl or Zora's hair has killed Cheryl. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the, uh, uh, holdovers from culture. Um, and Zora and Anna like have this moment where they're just like, yeah, like, um, you know, like whatever it's the hair and it like has this hunger that needs to be fed by blood and it keeps growing and, and growing. And <laughs> there's this hilarious moment where Zora's just like, well, it's just hair. Yeah. <laughs> And she tries to cut her own weave off, but as we might expect, the hair fights back and um, seemingly like hangs Zora. Yeah. So there's a there's a moment earlier when they're talking about the Mosshead girl, 
which mm-hmm. comes up again later because Zora appears to die, but shows up again later. And basically what happens is, is there's this line um, in the in the story that says, like, if you see her walking around, it's not, you know, it's not her. It's, not it's her. just the witches taking turns in her head. So yeah. the idea is that the hair itself is like, you know, the energy or the, the spirit of the witches. And then it can just possess, you know, a human puppet. Um, right. So I think the hair here is like, well, we don't fucking need you, and yeah, kills Zora. We just need your body. Um, yeah, because we do see Zora later, and she is clearly and like sort of like you can see when the you know when somebody's possessed because their eyes change color, mm-hmm. um, like a weird sort of like white silver type type color. Um, and that's what we see later with Zora is just like she's walking around with weird eyes. Yeah, and like the hair is like crazy now right mm-hmm. and it's yeah. like because it, you know the hair can grow and it like you know it can grab you and it become it becomes whips and things and it's sort of always just like flowing and it almost mm-hmm. becomes like a gown around zora yeah um at this point because you know the, like shit has hit the fan right yeah um and there's you know we sort of get like our final chase sequence that happens like throughout the office of like Zora as witch hair, hair witch. Um, <laughs> Lena Waith nails it. <laughs> yeah, Lena Waith shows up. Brooklyn, um, you know, was at the office. Because I guess it's still the night of the party. It's just like Yeah, really- I think it all happens within a single night. Yeah. So, like, there were a lot of people, like, in and out of the offices and, like, ha- the after party sort of or whatever. And um, uh, Brooklyn, Lena Waithe's character, who didn't get a weave, you know, is uh, one of the few people in the office who uh, is, like, fighting back. And there's, like, this funny bit where, like, I guess she, like, pretended to be taken over by the hair. Um, yeah, re- yeah, she, I think we see her body amongst the, because Anna the sees, room. like, the conference room full of bodies where the hair is feeding because I actually, maybe there is a break in time between the party and this because there's a moment where Anna has to host. She has to step into host because nobody can find Zora. Oh, that's right. Um, the weird and, moment with Sandra. Yeah. And because yeah. that's when she see, she thinks she sees Zora in the studio. So this is, I guess, that night. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's a couple days after the party. But yeah, she sees uh, Brooklyn's body amongst the bodies in the conference room where Zora's hair is feeding. But it turns out Brooklyn was just pretending to be one of the... (laughs) Right, because she's like realized what's going on. Yeah. But she's like blending in. There's some some great delivery on Lena Waithe's part. Um, It's very campy at this point, right? Yeah. And, uh, and, but yeah, and there's like, there's two different moments where Brooklyn gets swept away by the hair. Yeah. Once is by Zora's hair, and then I think the other time is by um, Sister Soul's hair. Mm-hmm. The elevator. I guess she eventually dies. She sort of she she pops back up like three times. Yeah, I guess the last time is the moment because we don't yeah. see her after that. But yeah, she gets got. You think she's dead like five times before she actually is. My favorite part was like the um when uh when Anna. When she puts, she like shoes um, Zora mm-hmm. at the at the one part, and, and it seems to like kind of kill the hair, and then like Brooklyn just pops out and she's like, "Bitch, what is you doing? <laughs> <laughs> like, I, haven't you seen enough like 
Jason. Oh yeah, she was like, "Don't check if she's dead. Let's go." Don't check if she's dead. <laughs> I did enjoy that a lot. <laughs> that was really funny. Um, but eventually, this all culminates. Um, the hair seemingly cannot be stopped, right? Mm -hmm. And so, uh, Anna is uh, barricaded in an office. She finds a gun underneath a desk. I guess it's Zora's desk. I'm not sure. They're in like the sound booth, and she looks yeah. up, and there's a gun taped to the bottom of the desk, and, and she's a gun like, "What the, the fuck?" Bottom of a desk. I I cringed really hard. I was like, "Oh my god, it's Chekhov's gun!" Except you didn't show it to us. Yeah. Beforehand, but any and um. She's like, all right, well, fuck it. I'll shoot at the bitch. But it's not a real gun. It's one of those lighter guns. And um, so she like she lights a cigarette. And then she uses it to set off a sprinkler. Yeah. Which kills the hair. Yeah. And she's able at that point to, like, cut it off her head while it's yeah. writhing in the... Yeah. And as it's writhing and dying, she cuts her own weave out. And it um, it kills the hair for Zora and Sister Soul and the other women in the office that had gotten weaves that had sort of like all like joined in it to bring down Anna. Um, and she survives and she leaves. And um, then we sort of get like the epilogue denouement to the film. And um, what do we learn there? So <clears throat> we learn that Zora's body hair survived the incident um, and she is still being sort of puppeted around by the hair at this point. And that's where you get the repeat of the line. Like, um, you know, it's just the witches taking turns in her head. Like, I thought that was such a creepy, such a good line. Yeah. Um, but um, Anna, like, takes a look at the bottle that she had been putting in her hair of, like, the lotion she had been putting in her hair and finds that one of the main ingredients was pig's blood. Um, yeah. so that's kind of like where the feeding of the hair came from. Um, so, very like little shop of horrors. Right. right? <laughs> yeah. So she finishes, like, she goes back to the story, the moss head girl. Um, and she keeps, she finishes reading it where there's kind of an epilogue to that, where, um, the descendants of the plantation owner, um, obviously retain the land and retain the tree that the land or the, 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 the tree that's on the land with the moss, where it all comes from, and continued to sort of um, <clears throat> harvest the moss, um, knowing mm -hmm. that it had magical powers. So you see that the weaves from um, Virgie's are coming from, you know, are coming from this tree on a, you know, what I guess is a former plantation. So they're being, you know, sort of mined from that tree itself, that comes from the story of the moss-haired girl. Um, but interestingly, and not surprisingly, we see that the descendant of the slave master is in fact um, Grant Madison, played by James Vanderbeek, who is the new, the guy at the beginning who took over culture and put Zora in charge in the first place. Um, so, what a twist. Yeah, so the, that's like the classic... Um, you know, like, ooh, you know, like, question, bloody question mark at the end, especially because Anna's uh, cousin, sister, Linda, tells her in the last scene that she's got an appointment uh, to get a weave put in at Virgie's, and she's like, what? And then it cuts to, cuts to black. Cuts to black. Yeah, so that, so that is the film. Um, 
Let's maybe talk a little bit about the background of the film itself mm -hmm. and then get into like some more things about hair and we'll analyze it from there. Sound good? Yeah. Okay. So um, this film was directed by Justin Simeon, who um, this was his second feature film. He had previously directed uh, Dear White People, uh, the film in 2014, I believe. Yeah. And then he, um, the uh, successful Netflix spinoff mm -hmm. show. Um, I'm not sure if the Netflix show has ended. I do not know. Or if that's still ongoing. But um, yeah, so that, that was really his big thing. Um, this was his second thing. And um, the, the idea came about because he was talking with um, some of his producers on Dear White People. And they were all really intrigued by this idea of hair horror that comes up a lot in uh, J-horror. Um, and other uh, Asian horrors, films like The Wig and X Day and Extension. And they were really curious about how that would work in an American context, because that's a very um, East Asian sort of mm -hmm. thing, right? Hair horror. Mm -hmm. So they go, like, oh, how would that work in the Western world and how would it specifically work in America? Um, he had always wanted to do a horror film, uh, because he felt that it would give him a lot of creative freedom. That's like the genre where you, where you sort of get to play the most as a filmmaker. So he sort of brought those, those two ideas together, started doing research. He produced a treatment. He set the film in 1989 because um, as he discovered in his research, that actually is the year that the weave became popular that it became a trend. So, okay, so we were, that yeah. was, that's kind of what we see in the film then, is everyone's like, yeah, what exactly, the fuck is exactly. this? Um, and he cites um, uh, a cover of Ebony Magazine that year with Janet Jackson on the on it, in which she had a weave. Mm -hmm. Whereas, like, the in, in the month's previous cover, um, uh, the women featured on it had um, their natural hair, which, you know, had had basically been the case until that point. And he was really intrigued that you could basically pinpoint the shift down to the exact month mm -hmm. that it happened. Right. Interesting. Like down to the exact moment in time in 1989 that the weave became sort of like a thing. Hmm. And so that's why the film is set that year. Um, the financial success of get out, uh, three years prior was really helpful, um, securing a green light, uh, to begin production on this film, um, the sort of the proof basically that there was a really large market for horror films that looked at the African American experience. Mm -hmm. um, he, uh, Simeon, looks at um, and cites uh, Rosemary's Baby, Carrie, and The Shining at the films he looked at the most while crafting Bad Hair. He feels that these films are all very personal films, but made by famously obsessed directors. <laughs> <laughs> and um, he puts himself in that category. He says this was an idea that very much obsessed him and consumed him. Um, and so that's why he, he sort of wanted to look to those three films as to how to make this film. Um, he spoke to a lot of black women during production um, because... Uh, while he could obviously come from a black space, he couldn't come from a black female space. Mm -hmm. So he needed to pull a lot, right? As, as a writer and as a director, he would host workshops 
um, with, with black creative women in his life where they would watch a bunch of different horror movies and then basically just talk, you know, he would ask them questions about like, what's the most frightening real life experience you've ever had mm-hmm. just to get a sense of, um, you know, who Anna should be and who Brooklyn should be and who sister soul should be. And even like who Zora should be, mm-hmm. um, in the film. And so that's a little bit about the, uh, the, the pre-production of the film and, and a bit of a making of the film. Um, the hair effects themselves, uh, it looks like all had a very practical base. I can see that because I feel like a lot of the hair stuff looked um, stop motion-y. Like stop, did, right. stop motion like that was then enhanced with you know which i like yeah no i enjoyed it a lot like you know and i think there is something to be said for like purposefully not making um effects look super realistic you know like yeah. playing into that sort of camp of like the blood's too too bright or like mm-hmm. the movement's too too weird like i think there's there's a stylistic um you know plus to that Yes, especially like that's so that's so late 80s. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. Like and since he set the film at that time, like I think that was a smart choice. Yeah. Um, yeah. So definitely a practical base. Um, anything that was digital, um, he said that like that was always sort of like matted over something mm-hmm. they practically did on set. Yeah. Um, and that he worked really closely with all of that with uh, Tony Gardner who um, horror fans will know um, has done special effects on the Child's Play series um, and has worked really closely with bringing Chucky to life. Nice. Um, so, yeah, so the film premiered at Sundance uh, on January 23rd of 2020. Uh, Hulu Ooh. acquired the distribution <laughs> rights uh, very shortly afterwards. Mm-hmm. They released it for streaming on October 23rd of 2020 mm-hmm. after a limited theatrical run that was handled by Neon uh, that began on October 16th. Uh, Bad Hair currently has a Rotten Tomatoes score of 64%, a Metacritic score of 61 and an IMDb rating of 5.6. IMDb is like famously the, the least, the one that I put the least weight on. Yeah, because <laughs> feel- it's just... Because it's just users. It is. And it's like, you can really tell when people, like, if you've got a film on there that's making statements or anything, you can really tell because people will just, like, really go to town. Like, Metacritic and Rotten Tomatoes, I found to be pretty close. Sometimes Metacritic is a little more, um, skews more negative, I think, than Rotten Tomatoes. Yeah, um, I, and I think, and I will argue, I think Rotten Tomatoes can skew too positive. Oh, no, because it also is doing users like it granted it gives more right. weight to sort of verified people but it's right. still using users definitely and the well, the Rotten Tomatoes thing their algorithm is what people forget is that their rating is just if you should see the movie yeah it's not actually about the quality of the movie yeah um <clears throat> but no I feel like this is the exact type of thing. like IMDB is very much the place where um somebody's just like I don't get it Two stars. Yeah. I, I know. It, it sounds really pretentious, but IMDb is always the one that reminds me, like, when I, I'm like, oh, people don't understand movies. <laughs> and I remember, too, like, IMDb, there was a period where Wikipedia wasn't even including it in its reception area because it could be so manipulated just by 
Yeah. You know, what have you. Just by people um, hating on a movie. Yeah. So, yeah, obviously, like, this is just included as a factual thing. Like, take all of that as what you will. Um, and I also, I didn't, I don't have it included here, but um, the a letterboxed rating is something I trust a lot. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm not sure what it is on letterboxd. I think it's like a three out of five, which sounds right. Um, but yeah, so positive reviews at the time, um, you know, and it was, it was reviewed in all the big ones, New York times, New York post, vulture, all of that. Uh, they note, uh, the unabashed B horror campiness of the film as being a positive, uh, it's original story, it's dark humor and the sociopolitical and cultural commentary that it makes, uh, more critical reviews, cited an imbalance between the horror and the comedy. So what's interesting here about that is that you say here, like, okay, imbalance horror and comedy with not enough horror. I felt that there wasn't enough comedy. Interesting. (laughs) Yeah. My take on it was like, okay, I'm, I'm on board. This is serious. This is creepy. But I felt that the most comedic parts of it weren't until the very end. With Lean Away. Yeah, so it felt like, yeah, and that entire final sequence um, felt like, okay, like, here's where the satire, you know, sort of pieces come in. Like, until there, I was, like, totally buying it at face value. That's so interesting, yes. I feel like I'm agreeing with you. And I think, like, those really funny moments at the end Mm -hmm. with Lean Away are out of place. Yeah, yeah, because, like, you know, we have her character throughout, but you don't, you know, you get, okay, like, okay, yes, this is the, the wisecracking class clown type character, but she's not really in the movie a ton up until that point, And she doesn't get any real moment to do much until that point. And then there's no yeah. real, so she's the only one delivering humor during these, like the hair scenes, right? Because everything else up until yeah. that point is Anna with the hair and it's very frightening and horrifying. Um, yeah. But Anna Waith or Lena Waith, um, Offers, like, a sense of, like, well, this is fucking weird, like, to yeah. it that we didn't get before, which is fine. It's just we don't get it until the last, like, ten minutes of the movie. Yeah. Yeah, that's, it's so weird because, like, I laughed. Yeah. And, like, it was, it was funny and, like, Lena Waithe does a great job. But it's, like, it's that kind of thing where it's, like, I almost feel like they told her, like, oh, just be Lena Waithe. Yeah. Instead of, like, just be Brooklyn. Yeah. Like, I don't know that she's the character in those moments as much as she makes me laugh. Like, because we don't see the character really be like that beforehand. Yeah. Yeah. So my argument is, yes, there's an imbalance, but it's the reverse of what they found. That's funny. I take it. I take it. And that just just goes to show, right? It's all in the eye of the beholder. Yeah. Um, A couple other things that get critiqued is an overly long run time. There's a couple of reviews that say that the film is about, like, 10 or 15 minutes too long. The thing is, is, like, I, I can believe that. I just can't tell you where I, I didn't feel that. Like, I believe that's true. Like, I always, like, when people are like, oh, yeah, like, you can shave 5, 10 minutes. Like, I think that's true for most movies. Here, I could not, out of my brain, pinpoint a, a specific moment where I feel that you could have shaved that time i mean maybe the interlude between the party stuff and the final um like sort of battle where she does get her moment to be the um host like i feel like that doesn't tell us anything we haven't already seen but at the same time i am fine with it i think it was a fine scene yeah i definitely wasn't like 
checking my phone or anything while I was yeah. watching my, like, you know, there are, there are movies where you're watching where like, you can feel you're mm-hmm. like, oh, okay. Oh, we really have 20 minutes to go. Yeah. Um, I didn't feel that necessarily with this movie. Yeah. yeah. So I, I think I agree with you. Yeah. Um, and then this is a dumb critique that I don't like, but it did come up and just for the sake of critiques, we'll say it. Um, Critique saying that the film was not as poignant at Jordan Peele's Get Out. So <laughs> I don't like critiques like that because they're two separate films. They're two why separate films and also they're, like... And they're doing two different things. Also so why, the, the white dickishness of comparing it to another uh, successful black produced and written and directed film. Exactly. Like that's... And yeah. like, like... Get Out was an Oscar-nominated film. Yeah. It was nominated for Best Picture. Jordan Peele won for Best Original Screenplay. Like, that's that's a high bar for yeah. anything. Why does yeah. this film have to be that Right. Bad? And it's like, okay, are you also going to compare it to other Oscar-nominated right? <laughs> screenplay films? Like, the fact that, like, they very clearly picked out, like, the other, like, the quote-unquote other big black horror film is like exactly. fuck off but yeah a recent black horror film that was doing social commentary like oh, yeah it's not as good as that like okay shut up like shut up <laughs> that's what we're talking about and i just i don't really, really really like things like that in general like just look at the work on its own yeah. like there's no need to no then that's the thing i didn't went through i don't i don't go you know and this is not a pat on the back like this is just my experience but it's like i didn't go through thinking how can i compare this to get out like i don't you know exactly and also black horror did exist before get out like right. throw that out there people another thing that's always good to remind people of. <laughs> but sure uh, okay yeah so then one final note uh the film was the budget of the film was uh around 8.9 million dollars uh hulu purchased it for approximately 8 million hmm. um and so Combined with uh, whatever they got from that minimal theatrical run, it likely recouped its budget. Good for them. Um, which is always good to hear. Yeah. I know. And I the- remember doing like crazy. Did you, when you were a teenager, would you do like crazy math when a movie you really liked came out to see if it <laughs> recouped its budget? Yeah. Because like, it's not as straightforward as you think. Like, there's a lot of weird math you have to do to see if it happens. I know. I. I remember thinking, I was like, someone should come up with like a formula yeah. to, to finally figure out like, is a movie actually financially successful? Yeah. Because like, you've got the budget and then like, you have how much it makes, but then you have like, it's marketing thing. Which is then, not included in the budget. So included. like people traditionally would say it has to make at least double, I think, but that's not always true. And yeah. there's the whole issue of foreign markets. Like, did they sell the rights? You know? Yep. I always 100%. found that I was weirdly, that's something I was like weirdly into to be like, but did it recoup its budget? <laughs> I absolutely agree with you. That's, that's so funny. We, I don't know that we've ever like brought that up. Between yeah, no, us. it would like, be a I, weird thing I, that I would do. I've always been fascinated by budgets and how much a movie makes and what that means. Um, another thing I've always been fascinated about is billing order. I have had, and you know, the first time I had like a really big conversation about that with was with my friend when we saw, um, uh, was it Force Awakens? No, it was actually Avengers. That billing order is weird. It is weird, but it was Avengers. 
because oh, the amount of people in that movie, the the most, you know, like Avengers Endgame and Avengers, yeah. what the fuck was the other one called? The first uh, half of Infinity. Yeah. Like, because that's, you know, full of, you know, everyone. Like so it's like, okay, what sort of like agent gladiatorial games went down? And we were looking oh, at like... It's a huge deal. It's a huge deal. And we we're like, oh my God, Chris Pratt got the with credit. So it was like, holy shit. Dang. Like, what? Yeah. <laughs> Wow. So it was like, oh my so, god, like what crazy magic did his agent pull to get that when you've got Robert Downey Jr., was- Gwyneth Paltrow, Chris Hemsworth, Chris Evans. So so I, yeah, I haven't I haven't seen either of those films. Um is RDJ gets the top billing. I believe he I gets top billing. I believe he did. Okay. Let me see. I'm gonna do and that. Chris Pratt gets the with is there an and? There is an end. Um let me see. Because I remember we were staring at the, you know, it was like one of the cutouts that said, mm-hmm. like, um, everyone who's in it. Um, so it was, okay, so as far as I can tell, it was Robert Downey Jr. got top billing, and then Chris Hemsworth, Mark okay. Ruffalo, Chris Evans, okay. Scarlett Johansson, Benedict Cumberbatch, Don Cheadle, Tom oh. Holland, Chadwick Boseman. <laughs> Paul Bettany, Elizabeth Olsen, Anthony Mackie, Sebastian Stan. God. Um, and then Denai Garaya, Leticia oh. Wright, Dave Bautista, Zoe Saldana, Josh Brolin, and then Chris Pratt got the whiff. And somebody Jeez. in there got an end. I don't know who. Wow. But um, yeah, that was like the Olympics. So. That's that's crazy. Yeah. Because, like, you could you go down to, like, whoever's 10th build, and, like, if they... They could like, easily be top build, build in any other they movie. They would top build. Yeah. Yeah. That's insane. Let me see if I can see. Well, I'm going to see if I... I'm going to see what I can see. You keep going. See what you can see. <laughs> I was going to say, um, for our last, like, production side of things, uh, do a roll call for mm-hmm. this cast... Um, and then we'll go into some background and analysis. Uh, and for roll call, uh, we will go through in billing order. Great. <laughs> so um, first build is Elle Lorraine, and she gets an introducing. Nice. Um, first movie. This was her debut feature. Yeah, so introducing Elle Lorraine as Anna Bloodsoe. Um, we can just do, like, a, I don't know, like a thumbs up or thumbs down on yeah. this performance. No, I thought she was excellent. She really yeah, made me feel things. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say, you mentioned earlier during the scene where she gets the weave. Yeah. It's really believable. Um, and you really feel for her. Yeah. So, yeah. I think definitely a thumbs up there. Uh, next is Jay Farrow as Julius. I thought he did good. I think he was one of the situations where the comedy wasn't obvious. And you couldn't tell it was supposed to be comedy versus this guy's just fucking weird. Yeah. Um. It's he, very blurry. Yeah, it felt like, okay, he's playing a sort of character, like a shtick from SNL, but nobody's acknowledging it. Like, you know. Yeah. So. Yeah. Yeah, and it's like, I was trying to figure it out, and I was like, is that his performance? Is it the writing? I was like, I don't know what it is between the two. And I was just like, because um, I feel like we're supposed to, well I, well, I don't know. I feel like we either need to really laugh at him or really not like him. Right. And I and, was kind of just ambivalent towards him. And I was kind of, yeah, and I was kind of, like, in the middle about that. I was yeah. just kind of like, sure, whatever. 
Um, but but yeah, but he did good. Yeah. Uh, Lena Waithe as Brooklyn. Good, funny. They kind of just good. leaned into this is Lena Waithe by the end. Yeah, I don't think they knew how to use her. Yeah. Um, Kelly Rowland as Sandra, the rising R&B star. She did go to being creepy with very minimal. She sure did. Anything. And she was whipping that hair around. She was. In the, the stairs music video. Yeah. Uh, Laverne Cox as Virgie. This is the hottest hair salon. <laughs> uh, great. Very like Laverne Cox bit part. Um, yeah. believably creepy with very little um I do wonder though how much she's gonna she like gets pigeonholed in these roles as like the mothering yeah well as a hairdresser but like the the mothering <laughs> cosmetic figure to black women I mean I feel like that's what we constantly see her as so I'd like to see somebody not you know cast yeah. her as that um, yeah, but I thought she was good. She... Yeah, she was good. Uh, Shantae Adams as Linda Bledsoe. Yeah, she was fine. She's kind of mean. She's fine. <laughs> yeah, yeah. She's she was good at like that. Like uh, we get the like implication that like she's very um, not like self centered, but like it's she's like humble brags, brag, right? Humble brags, yeah, like unaware humble brag. brags. Yeah, she's real focused on what's going on in her world. Mm-hmm. Ashley Blaine Featherston as Rosalind, uh, Zora's assistant. Believably, like, that bitch at the office. Yep. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, she was good at, like, that thing of, like, you're coming in with the new boss and then sort of, like, insinuating yourself into, like, this established mm-hmm. culture. But, like, because you're with the new boss, no one can call you on it. Yeah. Uh, James Vanderbeek as Grant Madison. Believable white asshole. Yeah. Yeah. But also, like, clever, like, subtle enough that, like, when we first meet him, we're kind of like, yeah, you're a dick. Mm -hmm. But, like, we don't really read too much more into it. So when they have that moment at the end, it's like, oh. Yeah. Okay. It's like, oh, you're a super dick. (laughs) Yeah, like he doesn't give like you're aware of 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 all this, which is which is good. Uh, Michelle Hurd as Maxine Bloodsoe. Yeah, good. Good. She doesn't have a lot to do, but um, comes off very caring. Yes. Judith Scott as Edna. Very good. Believably disappointed. (laughs) Um, Yeah, it's good because I felt that she was mentorish without being like motherly. Yes. Um, which I thought was good. It's like, this feels like a professional mentor who is right. professionally upset with you. And if, cause she was motherly, it would feel weird that like she hadn't promoted Anna. Yeah. But because there's that professional I, distance. Yeah. And I think that that would be a little too cliche or go into a motif of like, you're like a mom to me or, you know? Yeah. And she... She uh, she kills that delivery um, in the salon when the hair starts attacking. Yeah. She's like, oh, shit. <laughs> <laughs> and then she gets killed. Yeah. Uh, Yanni King Monshin as Sister Soul. Good. I feel yeah. like she was one of the more charismatic in that group, especially going against um, Lena Waithe. Like, 
That yeah. was impressive. Yeah, she definitely holds her own. Um, Not going against, but, you know, having that also, like, being yeah, in that yeah, same yeah. group. Like, sharing scenes. Yeah. yeah. And I like seeing, like, she, like, very clearly alters her performance, um, like, after Sister Soul gets mm-hmm. the weave. Yeah. In a believable way. Yeah. Um, that we can we can see how it's affecting this character. Um, to Helly Hall as Cheryl, the former head of programming. Yeah, the girl only see her for like a minute. Yeah, we don't we don't see her that much. Um, Nicole Byer as Gina. And very Amber. good. <laughs> very very good, quick. Very funny. <laughs> very Nicole Byer. Yeah. Um, nothing wrong there. Uh, Steve Zizis as Baxter Tannen. Believably creepy, gross. He was good. Yeah, yeah, he was creepy. He and he was not like um. Which they could have done because this is a campy film. He wasn't like um, cartoonishly evil. Yeah. You know, like he was just like, oh, you're definitely like a real person that yeah. exists. In well, and it's such like a creepy thing, like being a single woman, especially a single black woman with a white landlord who yeah. has the ability to pound on your door and or like unlock it, assuming they all have key, you know, he has keys to all the apartments. Like that's a very real horror. Yeah. Yeah. That's a really unsettling moment when she, when he comes in and she like, I think she's coming out of the bathroom and she sees him like standing there. Yeah. And he's like drinking and it's like, yeah, drinking. Yeah. Uh, Usher as Jermaine. You know what? It's funny because this is the exact role where I would be like annoyed with the situation. Cause it's like, Oh my God, he had five lines and he couldn't even do it. But I think he did fine. (laughs) I think he did fine too. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Like there was one scene where he had to show like concern and it, mm-hmm. it was, it was for 30 seconds and he did it and it was good. <laughs> I believed him. Yeah. yeah. Plus he's basically playing Usher, right? Like he's playing a male entertainer. Right. So it's not like he had to do, you know, too yeah. much. Right. We get the implication that he's like also a singer or an yeah. R&B star or something like that, that connects him to Sandra. So yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, and then we get uh, Blair Enderwood. He has the with credit uh, as Amos Bledsoe, uh, Anna's good. uncle. I liked him a lot. Uh, yeah, It's really funny good. because his voice was almost like, I don't believe a human has that voice, not on the radio. <laughs> but, um, I don't know, right? <laughs> but he was very good, and he was very, like, very believable as like the academic uh, father type who's just constantly trying to get his kids to... To think yeah. more analytically about their situations. Yeah. And bringing in that thing of like, he's really concerned that like the next generation is getting lost in like all the trends and mm-hmm. they're going to forget where they came from. And you know, like, like that's obviously really important to him. Yeah. yeah. That was good. Uh, and then finally we finished the billing order with Vanessa Williams. She gets the and credit as Zora choice. Very creepy. I did, if you had told me before this that Vanessa Williams could play, like, a sort of ominously creepy character in a horror film, I would have been like, maybe. (laughs) Maybe, maybe. The only reason I would have told you that is because she plays a kind of creepy character on Desperate Housewives. Yeah. Yeah, I've never seen Desperate Housewives. Oh, you've got to check it out. It's such campy nonsense. Um, um, yeah, she did good. Uh, she, she was Vanessa Williams, right? She's yeah. rarely bad in anything. Yeah. Um, 
And so, yeah. And so that wraps up production side of things. Mm-hmm. Now let's dig into a little bit of um, themes and motifs and analysis and our reads on the film. Right. Um, Miss Mel, would you be kind enough to kick us off? You've got some amazing notes and research. Hopefully. Uh, <laughs> yeah, that yeah. I'm really excited to get into. Oh, sorry, real quick. Yes. Um, I think this was obvious in our discussion. We just didn't officially do it at, um, when we first saw this film. Oh, yes. This was the first so, time I saw this film. Was it, this the first time you saw it? This was the first time I saw it. Um, and, the first time I became aware of it, though, was it was popping up on my Hulu around Halloween, like when you yeah. log into Hulu and it was like, watch this. And the reason I didn't was because I thought it was a comedy. <laughs> yeah. It wasn't well, clear to me like, that it was horror. Well, and it premiered like really late in October. Yeah, what did like, I say? Like the 23rd or yeah, something? Yeah. And it's like at that point, it's just like there's so much going on. Yeah. Um, but yeah, yeah. Um, and then our impressions. I think this has been clear, but I really like this movie. Oh, I enjoyed it. It's like, it's one of those things where it's like, I, you know, have no reason not to recommend it to people. Yeah, definitely. Liked it. Okay, cool. Now let's go. Okay. <laughs> so um, obviously the like uh, crux of this film depends upon the like context of um, the relationship between black women and their hair. Um, specifically in white America, um, you know, and as a white woman, that is not something I can like live. Um, and I think that this movie, you know, it was something I was aware of before that, because like, A, it's something I started to do my own research on and B, I would look at my interactions with friends I had in high school, like in hindsight and be like, oh, right. Like, first of all, like, you know, being a piece of shit white teenager and not understanding some of the things you say but um like yeah you know looking at it and being like, and we okay. all have that yeah and looking at it being like okay like I'm starting to contextualize this this stuff um but you know like across the board like hair type hair color hairstyle you know has often been a signifier of one status and like a use in white supremacy against various cultures um <clears throat> like specifically you know, like you'll see things like still today, like you get people who are redheads, you know, have various things. And that's not to say people with, you know, people who are gingers or anything, you know, that's not making that like comparison to the um, experience of black women. But, you know, like historically red hair, you know, back in the day was viewed as like this person's highly sexual, this person's a witch, this person's evil. Um, you know, you get... Um, at what well, there's go ahead uh, you say the expression <laughs> redheaded stepchild yeah redheaded yeah a redheaded stepchild you still get it today and one interesting thing that comes up in the Shirley Jackson biography is like Shirley Jackson had red hair she was born to a very waspy family and people made comments about the fact that she was born without hair that was more becoming to a servant than you know the daughter of a family of old old money folks essentially um you know, and you get that when you have the um, prejudices against Irish people at the sort of turn of the century. Yeah. Um, stere- the, you know, the sort of stereotypical curly hair of Jewish people, you know, the quote unquote Jufro mm-hmm. that people will talk about, which Jufro in and of itself, an entirely separate problematic issue sure. <laughs> as a sure. statement. But it was used as, you know, it's used as a cultural identifier and used in anti 
Semitic propaganda all the time. You know, in Broad City, there's an episode where Alana, she's in college and she's trying to straighten her hair because her roommates are making comments about her really curly hair as a Jewish woman. Mm -hmm. So hair has a history of being this thing where, you know, people in power, usually white people, are decreeing, you know, what goes and anything else is kind of, you know, some sort of signifier of a lower class, a lower being, etc. Texture of hair, but like color of hair, Mm -hmm. you know, Um, you brought up redheads, but like it also even makes me think of like um, dumb blonde jokes, Mm -hmm. you you know, the the idea that blonde hair equates to um, less intelligence. Yeah. Um, So it's this weird thing that we all do. Now, according to the American Bar Association, as many as 80% of black women um, have felt pressured at some point to change their hair to meet professional standards in some capacity. Um, and there's this, uh, they quote this um, interesting finding from the Social Psychology and Personality Science. I think it's a magazine or a publication of some sort where they say, Black women with natural hairstyles received lower scores on professionalism and competence and were not recommended as frequently for interviews compared to three other types of candidates which were black women with straightened hair and white women with curly straight hair, uh, white women with curly straight hair, the researchers found. So basically black women with natural hair were at a disadvantage against all the groups, which included white women and black women with European style hair. Yeah. Um, An act that was proposed in Congress in September that has like a long fucking congressional weird code title, but, they just call it the Crown Act for shorthand, um, basically would prohibit professional discrimination based on hairstyle or texture um, and require schools and other institutions to retool their policies around like what they consider to be quote unquote neutral hair. Like, you know, Mm -hmm. and that's something you don't even think about when you read like school handbooks that say like hair must be exactly here or, you know, has to be quote unquote a natural occurring color and other things. Um, And these are all obviously based, you know, on, going to be based on white people yeah absolutely um, but i think a that lot... act has been passed in several states i think yeah it hasn't been passed on like the the, the federal level yeah um but it's it's going through and it's getting a lot of attention um but i think um something recently that's very relevant to this um is the situation with what people call you know quote unquote the the you know, gorilla glue situation um, with uh, Tesca, where basically there is this black woman who put gorilla glue in her hair and it's, you know, kind of become a meme and people are making fun of her and like, oh my God, what did you expect? But, you know, as it was pointed out by Princess Weeks in the Mary Sue, um, she says, quote, if you have decades of putting stuff in your hair, using tricks to make it last longer, programming you, programming you that being uncomfortable is a key component in beauty that's how you end up putting Gorilla Glue in your hair, even if it's not, even if it says it's not safe to do so on the can. So you glue it down to make sure it is the straightest, the most well kept, no matter the pain. Which I felt was particularly prominent in the scene where Anna's going through a crazy pain to get this weave put in her hair. Absolutely, and all the pain afterwards, right? Yeah, like yeah, and, yeah. And she's, and she's putting weird product in it, like because yep. she was told to, like. You know, again, continuing pain. Yeah. And that's a whole other issue, like to speak on, um, you know, issues culturally around how people are responding to that. You know, that's another thing. But, you know, this is 
this is the same thing. Like, you know, this is another situation of like, okay, white people don't have a public opinion about this because there's generations of, of pain and suffering that went into her decision to do that. Yeah. Um, like this is, this is the time to just listen. Yeah. Um, and this is, so getting into this next part is I think things where we found some maybe similar findings, but basically hair in and of itself has been associated with special powers and sensory abilities in many cultures. Um, famous examples, obviously Samson, the Israelite from the Bible who is tricked into getting his hair cut and is rendered pow- powerless and forced into slavery by the Philistines. Um, <clears throat> in, uh, Zohar station tradition, like hair and nails are considered their own life force and entity because they grow on their own. In numerous cultures, um, cutting of one's hair is considered a disgraceful act. You see this in the samurai culture, um, in uh, the, the, like in the Manchurian Empire, you see it with people who, to show loyalty to the dynasty, they would have to keep their hair growing long. In modern society, like, my dad grew up with the threat of getting his hair cut was, like, you know, if he acted out, my parents would be like, all right, we're going to get, you're going to get your hair cut. Get your hair cut. Um, You know, Sikh religious followers will allow their hair to grow naturally because it's considered respectful of God's creation. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, in Greek mythology, Medusa has snakes for her hair, and that's part of her power, and it's a form of protection um, after she was raped in... I believe the temple of Athena. Um, yeah. Even in Blair Witch, the witch is described as being covered in hair. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, that's so funny. You bring up that thing about your dad, uh, mm-hmm. you know, cause it's like, it makes me think of like, I'm not sure your dad would have fit in with this quite, but like, but, but like hippies, right? Yeah. Like that was a big, like major critique of hippies was how long, yeah. um, stereotypically they would let their hair get. Yeah. Uh, because that was like unacceptable and, uh, you know, like cut your hair hippie and yeah, all of those kinds of things. Yeah. Uh, that come up. That makes me laugh. Was your dad a hippie or is he, he not- was not, he just had kind of the long surfer type hair, oh, like in pictures hair. I've seen of him in high school. So I think his parents were like, all right, if you fuck up, we're going to cut your, you know, basically shave your head. Cause his dad was in the Marines. So I think it was kind of that type mm. of deal. Where it was like is, another thing, right? Like yeah. a, a way that hair is used to equal status. Like yeah. when you're in the military, your hair has to look a certain way. Yeah, and it has to be uniform. Yeah. Um, and you know, even the Lady Gaga song "Hair," where she talks about like that was the only way she could express herself in her yeah. Catholic private school that she went to because you know she had to wear uniforms and all this stuff. So hair was the yeah, only hair. thing she could fuck around with. Yeah. Definitely. Yeah. Um, it means a lot to a lot of people. Yeah. Across Listen, I've been thinking about some, some, some hair that I'm going to do. I'm going to, you're going to see, I'm going to have some pretty good hair when I finally get to go to the, the hair place again. I've got I a think plan. a lot of people are, are going to do, do some things. Yeah. Like I, I'm, I'm in need of just a regular haircut, mm-hmm. but I've just been thinking, I was like, I need to do something different. Right. I know we're all gonna have crazy fucking hair. I'm just gonna have crazy um, fucking hair. But no, I've been. I was actually talking about it with my therapist. I was like, "Do you think this would look good?" And she was like, "Fucking go for it." So, yeah, that's, all, that's the thing where I'm just like, I don't know, like what my face can pull off, like, right? 
like and then i was like let me crowdsource this it's like can you picture this so come yeah. like march april i'm gonna have some some hair experimentation that you guys are gonna see <laughs> right everyone's gonna get gonna get something yeah but you had some stuff about um sort of like maybe the uh inspiration for the fictional story of the moss haired girl yeah yeah yeah. so um the story that we hear in the film of the moss haired girl is not um is not an actual story that mm-hmm. that was fictional created by simeon um for the story but um that phrase and that name that description of moss haired um that does come from history mm-hmm. specifically it was a term and it was a designation that was used to describe um, a subset of sideshow performers hmm. that became really popular um, because of P.T. Barnum and his circus mm-hmm. when he claimed that he had uh, circassian beauties on display. And circassian beauties were um, a very old, ancient stereotype of... Um, this populace of uh, women that were enslaved and forced to serve as concubines to Ottoman sultans for hundreds of years. They were, uh, the Sarkisians were, I guess, a a group of people that lived in the Caucasus that Mm -hmm. had a reputation for being very beautiful. And so, um, you know, the Ottoman sultans would would capture women from that region to serve as their concubines. And so when P.T. Barnum's circus popped up, uh, the early 1900s, I believe it was like, that was like meant to be an attraction. Mm-hmm. Oh, we have a Sarkeesian beauty or whatever. Um, but these performers, these sideshow performers, um, wore, uh, they had really curly big hair mm-hmm. that, um, they would wash in beer and then tease. Huh. I wonder what the beer does. Yeah, I'm not entirely sure, but like I guess it achieved the desired effect. Yeah. And it's no one's really quite sure why that this hairstyle was sort of chosen for mm-hmm. the um the circus Sarkasian beauties because that wasn't associated with the actual Sarkasian people. Mm-hmm. That's not what their hair um as far as we know was like. Mm-hmm. Um they did apparently wear fur hats. And so people think that like the hair for the okay. circus performers yeah. was like a reference to that or an adaptation of that. Um, huh. Yeah. So just sort of another curious element. Um, but yeah, that's, that's where the phrase moss haired girl is really strongly associated with. Um, but that, that story from the film is not an actual mm-hmm story from slave lore however some of the other ones like um the flying africans and Mm -hmm. the tar baby which i think get mentioned in passing those are actual um african-american slave lore stories that um were were part um stories that slaves would tell each other and part um like weird uh white racist dialogue Mm -hmm. around it um that, that uh, sort of really complicated, usually harmful idea that um, people of African descent possessed magical powers. Yeah, the magical new girl motif. Yeah. <clears throat> uh, 
and the idea that like African um, descended people could fly back to Africa at a moment's notice. Holy shit. Like a weird story that would crop up around slaves that would escape. Mm-hmm. And that's where the story of the flying African came from. And then the story of the tar baby was a story of, um, of a tiger that would, was really attracted to the, the dark skin of a baby and would, would swipe at it. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's a lot of like various different, um, complicated academic interpretations of what that story means, depending on who telling, who is telling it. Uh-huh. Um, so actual stories getting brought up in the film, the moss haired girl, not actually being one of them. Okay. Um, Stuff like that is always, you know, and I talk about this a lot, specifically when I wouldn't, like, whenever we talk about it or whenever I talk about it with somebody, um, like, ghost stories, because yeah. um, Ghostland, that that uh, travel book by, I forget his name. Um, oh, crap. But uh, there was this basically part travel book, part, like, haunted house guide, Philip Dickey. No. Yes. Yes, right? Colin Dickey. Colin Dickey. Ghostland, An American History of Haunted Places by Colin Dickey, which is part travelogue, part sort of like sociological commentary. He has a really interesting section where he goes through the South and kind of looks at different plantation stories and plantation Mm -hmm. ghost stories that pop up um, and talks about basically how they were excuses. They became excuses for us to not talk about the horrors of slavery and, you know, human chattel and you know all these horrible things that um our ancestors did to to other human beings by basically focusing on ghost stories and folkloric stories um so i think that you know this movie doesn't make a comment on that but i i always think about that when you talk about you know stories that get told about um you know black folks in that time by white people is it tends to always be some sort of cultural like shield against you know admitting guilt in that sort of way yeah yeah and there's i feel like there's real there's this really interesting idea with the moss-haired girl story even though it was made up for the film that like it's it's a it's a story from black people. Yeah. Like from people of African descent and like from the slaves. Mm-hmm. And that like, if Anna had been able to spend a bit more time with that story, right? Like this idea that like, if she was a bit more connected to her heritage, like she almost could have been saved or spared from this, mm-hmm. you know, like, but, but because those stories don't get told to her because like our society doesn't tell those stories because mm-hmm. like we're telling Hansel and Gretel and little red riding hood, yeah. like she ends up getting harmed because of that. Yeah. Yeah. And in that way, it's almost like a, a cautionary tale against, you know? Yeah. Like it's just a different version of, you know, a, a universal story of, you know, remember where you come from or, you know, remember history and that sort of thing. It's just in this context, it's very specific you know, consequences. Yeah, um, very specific. I know, I think that's very interesting. The universal story and also, like, the story whose message gets lost over time. Yeah. You know? Yeah, that, that's right. And, like, the idea that it's, like, oh, universal equals white, right? 
like we yeah. talk about Hansel and Gretel and that sort of stuff. It's like, oh, it's a universal story about like don't talk to strangers or whatever. It's like, well, it's for white people, right. <laughs> especially because you know in these stories it's white kids being you know beset upon by you know monsters and ghouls and various other creatures that are based on black folks that are based on Jewish folks, you know, like that are based on basically every um, other white adjacent other out there. Um, you know, I remember when um, uh, Tangled came out, people were making comments about how Mother Gothel looked like she was made to be stereotypically mm. Jewish. And, you know, how that relates back to stories of, you know, Her Jewish, yeah, like medieval Jewish people stealing children and that sort yeah. of thing. Um, so, you know, it's definitely something we're still wrangling with um, and Definitely a reason why we need to get, like, you know, different people in the room, you know? I think yeah. about this with, like, that fucking clusterfuck with American Dirt, where it was, like, this white woman was like, let me write the story of a Mexican migrant family. And it's like, no, why don't you let the, you know, a Mexican migrant person tell that story? Yeah. Um, but, yeah, no, I think it, it, it definitely makes the the comment about like you know what stories need to be told and who needs to hear them and why um and one <laughs> go for it oh sorry no i didn't mean to cut you off i just no. made me think of like um another like major theme of the film which is like the co-opting of stories and the mm -hmm. co-opting of culture right mm -hmm. like we see it in the in the movie because um you know there's this discussion of like um white artists are stealing the trends from black music. Yes. Right. There's a, there's a lot of discussion about like, like James Vanderbeek is a white man black. taking over the black station. Right. And the white man taking over a black station is like, well, we should be given the proper airtime to showcase our artists who are doing these things mm -hmm. instead of like, you know, the white people who are sort of like stealing that, getting all of the airtime. Yeah. Right. And the, you know, the, you know, we get throughout that Sandra is, she's sort of climbing like the mainstream charts now, right? Yeah, yeah. Or whatever. And yeah, like, and then when we're introduced so, to her, she's got the the hair yeah, and they think at one hair, point she, she maybe has more, contacts. Yeah, she's more appealing or whatever to a white audience and stuff or whatever. Um, and so, yeah, I think that's another big theme of, of the film that you're hitting on there. Which brings me to my next point. Um, which I will never not talk about this because I think it was um, fucking handled poorly by Netflix, but Chambers on Netflix. Uh, I didn't watch it. I would recommend it to everyone. Um, so Chambers is completely different story. Um, but I make the connection here is that they're both possession stories. Like you could look at this as a sort of possession story. Um, mm -hmm. But Chambers is about a young woman who is native. She's a native woman. Um, who gets a heart transplant after she has, like, a very unexpected heart attack. Right. Um, and the heart she gets is from a white teenager who happened to die at the hospital the same moment that she, you know, was very lucky. Um, so she's got this white woman's heart in her chest, um, and what starts to happen is she starts to have these memories that belong to the white woman and the white woman's family are like taking her in and sending her to the private school that, that the, the white woman went to and she's getting taken into this stupid new age, um, like group that they have. Like, you know, all, what I found interesting in connection to those 
two things is like the idea of like a possession story as like a colonization story because this hair you know <clears throat> comes from a tree whatever but it's made to look white it's made to look european you mm-hmm. know and it's attached to her body so you've got this this white artifact you know like colonizing a black body you know and in chambers you've got this white artifact colonizing a native body and i just think they're interesting putting that that just concept together in general of like you know looking at colonization as a possession story or possession stories as a form of talking about colonization yeah that is really interesting i'd like to see more of that if people want to write those stories Also, everyone watched Chambers because it got, it got <laughs> fucking screwed over because it got canceled after one season, but it's good. I liked it. You know, the thing about Netflix is they just, they produce so much and they don't give chances to so much of what they do. Yeah. And you get like one or two seasons of something great and then they, then it's gone. And yeah. it's like, well, because you're dividing everyone's attention too much. Yeah, I think the first season does stand alone. They definitely, at the end, ended it in such a way where it's like, oh, what's going to happen? But, like, I think it makes its point pretty well in the first season. Um, I just, you know. How often do you get horror stories about Native folks starring actual Native folks, you know? Yeah. So. Oh, speaking of, this morning I started The Only Good Indians. Ooh, oh my God, so creepy. So Bob, so, he's it's so creepy. So Bob, because <laughs> um, um, I just know I was like, oh, it's gonna be so creepy. No, it's very and it's very sudden. Like, so, like you'll be reading about somebody going to the grocery store, and then all of a sudden, somebody's like head comes flying off, and you're like, oh, <laughs> like you just need to reread to make sure, like, oh, this is actually happening. <laughs> and I love that. Come yeah. at me out of nowhere. Yeah, it's great. Um, the other thing I wanted to plug which it's not out yet, but um, something that I intend to read as sort of an educational piece and anyone who's interested in this um, is the anthology series Trauma, Tresses, and Truth um, by Lizette Wanzer. Um, It is going to be published through Chicago Review Press. Um, I'm not sure when it's supposed to come out, but they do have a conference at the end of the summer um, under that same title. And basically what this is, is she... She's a professor and a writer, um, mainly of nonfiction. Um, she's part of like the Writer's Grotto, the San Francisco Writer's Grotto. Like if you've ever had those books that say like 642 th- tiny things to write about, like if you've seen mm. those books, yeah, they're yeah. the people who produce those. Um, so she, that's what she does, but she's been putting together this anthology where basically it's a discussion about, you know, it's various essays from black women about their relationship with their hair. Um, and she put together a August, um, conference for it, uh, where they'll talk about things, different panels include race, stigma, and the politics of black hair, uh, when children's hair breaks school rules, getting to the root of Afro-Latina hair, how natural black hair became a civil rights issue, uh, history of 1786 Tignong hair laws, uh, she talks about the Crown Act at one point, uh, is hair discrimination race discrimination, the Natural Hair Movement, A Historical Perspective, uh, Pelo Malo y Pelo Bueno, Afro-Latinas who's ro- Who Rose Above, and then there's some creative nonfiction readings, styling sessions, and a bunch of other stuff. So I would highly recommend, and when it happens, we'll 
send it out there as well, but I think she's a very good writer. She's written a lot of really good creative nonfiction and lyrical essays. Um, so I think it will be a very good learning opportunity for, you know, white people who just want to sit back and listen and understand and, you know, black folks who need to understand more about their own relationship with their hair. Yeah. That's a great companion piece yeah. to this movie. Yeah. I was like, I wish it was out right now so I could read it and talk. I know. About right. It. Perfect. But uh, she actually just uh, got sold the, the, the rights to it like last month, I think. Um, oh, wow. So it's very, yeah. But uh, the conference will be this summer. So, cool. and it's obviously virtual because, you know, yeah. We live in the apocalypse. Awesome. Yeah. So, definitely something to keep a lookout for then. Yes. Um, very good. Well, let's take a moment now to move into our next segment, which is One Good Scare. <laughs> And um, this is where we talk about what we each feel is the most frightening moment of the film for this episode. Um, do you have one or do you want me to go first? <clears throat> so I have kind of two. One is just in general, the scene, like not the scene, but the way they styled her face when she was like fully possessed with like the red yeah. light and the white eyes. Fucking creepy. Also really cool. Very creepy. Yeah. Um, the scene that definitely affected me the most was the weave, like, you know, putting the weave in scene, which isn't necessarily scary, you know, in the traditional sense, but I felt so horrible for her. It was such a tense, like watching the needle go in just really freaked me out. Yeah. I think that's definitely mine as well. That was the one where I was like squirming mm -hmm. in my seat kind of situation and just like. And you're just like, oh, oh. <laughs> you're, you're, you're like, like, you're like, ah, and you're like kind of gripping your own. Yeah. Head. And you've got you're like your, your hands in front of your eyes and you're like, is it done yet? <laughs> yeah, definitely that energy. Um, I mentioned the scene where that, you know, that beat where we see Tannen, the landlord, like, mm -hmm. he's in standing in there like the way the camera's situated like we, he's holding the bottle yeah and we see like his arm and we don't see much else of him and then anna comes out of the bathroom and sees him and like mm -hmm. freezes that's a really effective moment yeah um and yeah great makeup when she's possessed yeah cool 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 so we also have a segment that we'd like to do at this point called the view from the closet. Um, and we just offer up if there's a way to possibly view um, the film under discussion from uh, LGBTQ plus lens. So I feel like there's definitely fertile ground in her um, secondary character friends. Yeah. <laughs> Especially when Lena Waithe. <laughs> definitely um especially yeah. in the 80s but uh yeah i think there's definitely things with the brooklyn character that get that could be read um as as lesbian or bi mm -hmm. or, or um somehow uh sexuality wise other yeah, somehow sexuality rise other. Um, and there's that like weird moment where Zora is just like, I just want you to keep doing whatever this is. Yeah. Yeah, because yeah, like, she weirdly, Lena Waithe is the only one who she's like, it's okay, you can keep your. Yeah. Because she your wants. Look. 
she wants Lena Waithe's character to just sort of stay at is as is because like there's this implication that she finds it like exotic, yeah, and that it will be like sort of like the one like the token token yeah like a token weird thing that they'll have at cult, but everybody else's should should conform. Um. Yeah, and I think that maybe just um, the idea of feeling pressured to conform. Mm-hmm. Um, not in obviously this specific way, which is unique to, to black people and to black women, but just, um, the idea to, to alter yourself, to be more acceptable is something that mm-hmm. TQ people can relate to. Yeah. So, um, we don't have much to say for our legacy, legacy, what is a legacy portion no. because it's such a recent film. I would be interested to see with, you know, in terms of like, okay, people are inevitably going to sort of like bottle it into categories. Yeah. You know, and knowing that's going to happen, I would be curious what the conversation around it is after Run, Sweetheart, Run comes out, which is another horror Ooh, film yeah. that's specific about the black woman experience. Very different black woman experience. Um, so I do wonder if people are going to return to this as sort of like one of the earlier um, looks at, you know, specifically a the the horrors and experiences of a black woman in society. Yeah, I bet it will. Um, if only because, like, we've already seen how this film is getting put in conversation with Get Out. Yeah. You know? I would um, like to see it as, like, this is the thing that kicked off, like, hair horror. <laughs> that would be cool. Yeah. Let's see some more hair horror. Um And entirely possible, we'll give it time. This film has only been readily available for... Four months. Four like months, that. five yeah. months. October, late yeah. October of 2020. So not not super long. Um, plenty of time for it to build its legacy. Yeah. And uh, now we're going to move into our final portion of the episode, which is a closing question. Fun little ditty from Miss <laughs> Mel. What do you got for us? So this is probably a little weird, but... As we know, I hate body horror. I don't hate it. It's just, it gets me. It's effective it on me. Um, so I'd be curious to you, what weird other appendage horror would you like to see people Ooh, tackle in a film? That's a good one. I feel like And it comes up in horror, but like eye horror. Yeah, yeah. Ooh. Like a hardcore genre. Yeah. You know, like not as just something that happens in like other the, the the LASIK scene in Final Destination, whatever. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. But like a true like genre of eye horror nice. would really, would really get me. Eye stuff yeah. is hard to watch. Yeah, I agree. How about you? No, that's, I didn't really have an answer to this because I was like, well, what makes me squeamish? And it's like, I don't like cutting things. Like, that's kind of gross to me. Like, when people are, you know, you can see that happening. Slashed or whatever. Yeah. um, But eyes definitely are a thing that get me. I also fingernails, like, when people do sort of like torture scenes with them. Yeah. Um, That one scene in, is it Hostel 2? I think 
fingernails. Yeah. yeah. Like that gets me a lot, freaks me out. Yeah, but, fingernails would be rough. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, gross. <laughs> I know. There's there's a whole world of it out there that's still left unexplored. Yeah. You budding horror filmmakers. You creepy fucks. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, I think unless there's anything pressing that we've missed, this is going to close out the discussion mm-hmm. on bad hair. Yeah. Um, please feel free to share your thoughts with us about the film. Um, you can find us on Twitter, uh, splatter chatter, six, 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 uh, without the vowels. If you're mm-hmm. searching for us, you can email us splatter chatter, six, six, nine at gmail.com. You can find us on Instagram and Tumblr. Both of those are still up, right? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> right, 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 right. Well, the, t- uh, the Instagram still working on, on resurrecting, but, uh, the Tumblr, oh, yeah, definitely. Right. Yeah, Tumblr's, okay. Tumblr's good. Cool, 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 cool. Um, and you can uh, find our website at splatter-chatter.com. Com. <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, where um, you'll be able to find out um, our favorite horror films of last year. Mm-hmm. Also feel free to check out January's episode if you haven't listened to that as well. Mm-hmm. And if you want to support us, by all means, head on over to patreon.com slash chatter 666 If you're interested in our other episodes um, that were in honor of Black History Month, please check out episode 60, Horror Noir, where we covered mm-hmm. the Shudder original documentary, Horror Noir, A History of Black Horror. Mm-hmm. Uh, or you can check out episode 76, where we covered the original 1992 Candyman mm-hmm. in all of its complexities as it relates <laughs> to black horror. Yes. Uh, coming up next for our March episode, we are going to take a look at Ari Aster's Midsommar from yes. 2016 in honor of Women's History Month. Yes. It's going to be really interesting. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> We, we developed an interesting take on it, I think. Yeah, I think we're going to come at it from a pretty fun angle. I'm definitely looking forward to recording that episode and definitely to uh, revisiting it. I, I'm trying to remember if I've seen it since... I watched it during quarantine. Um, theaters, and I don't... Charlotte hasn't seen it, so we watched it. Yeah. I'm definitely going to... So, so I have it... I, I, I've got it on Blu-ray, so... I'm my plan is to watch it and then watch it with um Ari Aster. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So definitely looking forward to that. And nice. um hopefully you guys will be looking forward to it as well. Mm-hmm. In the meantime, be on the lookout for our special Black History Month giveaway. Mm-hmm. We have a Blu-ray copy of Get Out that we will be giving away (laughs) whoever wins the competition show details forthcoming (laughs) yeah be sure to check twitter for that if you would like a copy of get out yeah and uh so until we um are in your ears again for midsummer we want to remind you to always keep up the creep and for now we will say au revoir adios (laughs) 